The Spies Who Loathe Me. Why other spy franchises despise James Bond. And why Bond still tops Mission Impossible, Born, and what about George Smiley? Or even Jack Ryan. Yeah, let's go take a look. Hi, this is Dan Silvestri and Tom Pizzotto from SpyMovieNavigator.com, the worldwide community of spy movie fans, spy movie podcasts, videos, discussions, and more. If you like our podcast, please give us a five-star rating on iTunes and in Google Play. That helps us a lot. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and on Instagram, too. And when you have feedback, an idea for a podcast, something you want to say, just click the red button on our website that says, send us a voicemail. Or send us a message from our Facebook page, and we may include it on our show. Every other spy movie franchise loathes and despises James Bond 007 and the Ian Productions' 50-plus years of success. Why? Well, I, I actually think it's jealousy because no other franchise, let alone spy movie franchise, has survived and thrived for over 50 years on the big screen in books and in novelizations. Bond is big. And it may always remain big if Ian Productions continues to do the right things. Some things more right than others from one movie to another, but they have pretty much done the right thing for 50 years. In 1962, the movie franchise took its first big steps with Dr. No. Dr. No cost a million dollars to produce, and it grossed over $59 million, which gave Eon Productions a pretty good start in the James Bond 007 franchise business. In fact, if you look at it, that's 59 times their money. It's they, amazing. They made back. There's not a lot of businesses that can say that. That's a hell of a start for the franchise. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a good start. And really, just as a reference point, at that time, the average household income in the U United States was about $5,700 a year. And in the UK, for the average male, it was about 815 British pounds a year. So a million dollars. That was a lot of money. Somebody, it was a lot of money. That was a lot of money. I think we'll do another film. Yeah, <laughs> there's an idea. <laughs> Following up Dr. No with a smash hit from Russia with Love in 1963, which had a production cost of double that of Dr. No, $2 million, and now a worldwide gross of almost $79 million, and Ian was rolling in the dough. That's a very good thing for a producer to do, is put out a movie and just roll in the dough. Then comes Goldfinger in 1964, a huge success financially. That one cost $3 million to produce, and its worldwide gross was almost $125 million. And the money kept rolling in. That's amazing. You can fund a lot of projects with the revenue produced from just these three yeah, movies alone. Exactly. And this is from the worldwide box office receipts. Nothing to do with the licensing of images, toys, and everything else, which is all going to come out. Exactly. And so it just keeps... this is pretty amazing. Yep. Now, it doesn't include their marketing costs and stuff like that. You know, that's a separate uh, item in their, their spreadsheets and stuff. But we're just going to look at production costs and gross worldwide box office receipts for the things we're going to talk about today and this is amazing stuff yeah, and the weird thing is you look around and there's no other f spy movie franchise to be seen you've got this kind of revenue coming in and they've got no competition albert cubby broccoli and harry saltzman hitched their wagon to a star in the ian fleming james bond 007 franchise that was a good star to hitch on yeah fleming was happy 
And now the Fleming estate today is happy. And 24 James Bond 007 movies later, long out of Fleming material, the franchise may have suffered some stomach issues at times, but always relieved its indigestion with new, fresh content and writing, music, directorship, and a lot more. They're still going. There's and Bond 25 is on its way. No time to die. I was going to say, we're not going to call it Bond 25 anymore. we got to start calling it No Time no to Die. No Time to Die. And what does that mean? Hmm. We're going to find out. We're going to take a look at some of the numbers from the James Bond films. And we're getting this from the number, the-numbers.com, which they do all the movie numbers. So these are pretty accurate accurate numbers we just went through the first three movies dr no from russia with love and goldfinger thunderball continued the uh, momentum with 141 million gross and we're looking at domestic versus worldwide gross for for a reason here so thunderball was 63 million domestic 141 million gross then we we move on to live and let die and other movies as we're moving up the chain here all the way up to skyfall which cost admittedly a lot 200 million to produce this is 2012 but that still was 30 million less than quantum of solace yeah and it grossed worldwide 1.1 billion billion that's with a b that's with a b and the domestic box office was 304 million so we're going to talk about why this is key specter again 879 million worldwide with a 200 million domestic so why is this important we're going to talk about this in a second james bond has a worldwide appeal we're going to look at some numbers from other movies that are trying to compete with bond and you'll see why this is a, cri a critical piece here ian fleming wrote the bond series based partially on some real stuff that he knew from his naval intelligence experience during world war ii and part on fantasy his own fantasies he imbued Bond with a lot of things that Fleming himself loved in life. Fine cotton shirts and linens and stuff of clothing, great drink, food, and women. Now, despite that worldwide appeal, not every movie made more money than the movie before it. Right. Yet, the money kept rolling in. There's not a single one of these that <laughs> lost money. They all made a lot of money. Absolutely. Which is a pretty darn good thing. In the 1960s, every guy in the world could look at Bond longingly and try to emulate him. Oh, but, come on. Who, who didn't look in a mirror and go, Bond, James, James Bond? Yeah, cool stuff. But it was hard to be Bond in real life and expensive. Well, it was easier for Bond to live an expensive lifestyle than the normal person. He was able to have the champagne, the caviar, the high-end cars. Yeah. Because he didn't pay for any of that. Yeah, nice that MI6 picked up the tab. Exactly. Yeah, for us real people, <laughs> a little tough. A little tough. Yeah, but the entire montage of what Bond was was very appealing. Men wanted to be like him, and women wanted to be with him. Well, nonetheless, the women portrayed in the films were very strong women. We have a whole podcast on Bond and women and how strong they are. Let's let's start with the Bond woman. Honey Rider. Honey Rider <laughs> from Dr. No. Played by Ursula Andres. Uh, one of my favorites. Yeah, how, how could it not be? Does not does any spy movie fan not have emblazoned in their brain, Honey Rider, walking out of that water, in that in that bikini. However, she was still a very strong character. She meets Bond on the beach, and she's been collecting those shells. She sees Bond, and she goes for her knife at her left side. He says, "I promise you, I won't steal your shells." 
To which she quips, I promise you, you won't either. Yeah, I love that. That's, it's a great line. Like, and she's just going for a yeah, knife. Like, exactly. She's like, yeah, I'm, I, yeah, I'm not I'm not some little cupcake here. I'm, I can hold my own. Right? So she later tells Bond how she once killed a man who raped her by putting a poison spider in his bed at night. Okay. okay she's tough. She's tough. She's tough. And we actually see a poison spider in Dr. No with the tarantula. Yes. And what's happening in other spy movie franchises so Absolutely far at nothing. that time? I mean, nothing. Nothing was challenging Bond. TV shows came out in the 1960s as a result of Bond's success, Mission Impossible, The Avengers, and more, all capitalizing on the tremendous interest in spies, particularly Bond. There were plenty of spy movies before Bond, going back to The 39 Steps in 1935, which was considered the first spy movie and we have a whole podcast on the 39 steps and dozens of movies in between and since but there were no real franchises to challenge bond no basically in productions had a monopoly of sorts on the spy genre and audiences just loved everything that they put out as you heard some films did better than others in the worldwide box office but they made money 24 times so far that's that's a good run damn good and Craig's movies have done rather well, with Skyfall topping the billion-dollar mark and all of Craig's movies together, Casino Royale, Quantum of Solace, Skyfall, and Spectre, have grossed over $3 billion at the worldwide box office. Billion, yeah. And when billion. you get to those numbers, it doesn't matter that the costs go up as long as you're able to get those kind of numbers out of it, you can keep the cost escalating, and the cost really did escalate under the Daniel Craig bond. Yeah, I mean, since 62 to um, Spectre, which was uh, 2015, they grossed $7 billion, but the four Daniel Craig movies grossed $3 billion of the seven. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a good percentage. That's the last four movies they did. That's, that's pretty good. And, again, the franchise competition is where? There is no franchise competition. So, Enrico Fermi, he was a physicist, and actually he's really responsible for the nuclear age in a lot of ways. He once commented about the possibility of the universe just teeming with life. There was all these formulas and things about our galaxy has got 10,000 planets, probably with intelligent life and everything else. And Enrico Fermi said... If that's true, where is everybody? <laughs> it's the same here. Where is everybody? There's nobody coming in to try to... raking in hundreds of millions of dollars, and everyone else is sitting around going, wow, that's, that's good. I'm going to make <laughs> another movie of some other kind. Now, it did, I mean, it did help, though, that they had the Fleming books to go off of. Oh, absolutely. There, there was a known commodity. And the, the the Fleming books were very popular. They were popular in the U.S. because President Kennedy yep. loved From Russia with Love, put it on his top ten best books. And, yeah, they had a known commodity already. So, okay, that's something. Yeah, he got the character. Now, they didn't stick to most of the books Yeah, when they did the movies. And you look at the movies versus the books, just like, hey, they took a lot of liberties. They took pieces of one, put it in another. Uh, even Dr. No with, uh, with, with Quarrel dying and Dr. No. Well, that didn't happen. Right, exactly, and they and they had to do the, you know. The, I mean, it happened in the book, but now the later movies, he's he in the other books later on, he's still in it. Yeah, right, and then and but he's dead here. They killed him off in the first movie. In the first movie, he's dead. So anyway, 
Yeah. Uh, sure. George Smiley, Rupert Davies, made an appearance in 1965 in The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, based on John Le Carre's novel. Then James Mason played George Smiley in 1966's The Deadly Affair, which was an adaptation of the novel Call for the Dead. Then Gary Oldman, who I thought was terrific, plays Smiley in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy in 2011. A franchise threat? No, wasn't so, and isn't so. Tinker Tailor grossed worldwide of about $82 million in 2011, while the Bond's Skyfall in 2012 grossed $1.1 billion. Heck, Bond's second movie in 1964 from Russia with Love Gross worldwide box office sales of almost $79 million. So, no threat here to Bond. Smiley, he loathes Bond as well. well you know, I, I look at that and I kind of think, if they had tried to do the George Smiley character with the, with the same actor for the first few films, like yeah. what Bond did, and then established the changing the character, I wonder if that might have helped them. I think it would have helped, and we're going to see the same thing with Jack Ryan, really. Yes, that's exactly. Another, another problem. Think about it. Bond has been dominant throughout the 1960s, the 1970s, the 1980s, and into the 90s without a serious threat of another franchise decoding their success. What were these producers thinking about? I don't know. I mean, like, you, you see box office gold. It's like Enrico Fermi. Where is everybody? And now everybody seems to copy everybody else, and they didn't do it here. Yeah. I mean, Pierce Brosnan first played... Bond in 1995 in GoldenEye, but there had been about a six-year wait between Timothy Dalton's License to Kill, which I loved, and GoldenEye. That's a long time. Yeah, unfortunately, we're starting to get to those type type of time frames between the Bond movies. Yeah. Bond, Bond delays between films had other filmmakers thinking. Now they're finally thinking in the mid-90s, right? But Bond seemed to survive the long gap between films. Really, audiences were loving Bond again with GoldenEye. But will more delays in Bond film productions be coming, or are they back on schedule? Well, the Brosnan movies came out in pretty quick succession. GoldenEye in 95, Tomorrow Never Dies in 97, The World Is Not Enough in 99, and Die Another Day in 2002. So it seemed like he and productions were back on schedule. They were back on that repetitive cadence. Yeah, producing Bond films regularly. Not like the early 60s where it was every year, but... Pretty regularly. Yeah, so that, that actually, them coming back in here like this on a cadence, it's got to be good and bad for other producers. Good that they're keeping up the uh, interest level in audiences worldwide, but bad in that the only franchise and spy movies were back on track and audiences were accepting the new Bond after waiting so long. Right. So they were back on track and successful again. So what was the first big assault on Bond? Well, there were other spy movies in the 90s. There were three Jack Ryan movies based on the books of time, Clancy, that came out in the 90s. We had The Hunt, of, the Hunt for Red October in 1990. And that, now, that was with Sean Connery. Yeah, right? right, exactly. And that one actually, that returned 6.5 times on the re, ROI. That's actually a really, they made good return on their investment on that one. Now, Patriot Games in 92, that one, they made money, but they only doubled their money on it. Clear and Present Danger, um, and then you had additional ones like The Sum of All Fears in 2002, and then Jack Ryan, Shadow Recruit. These films all made money, and these were definitely the biggest assault on Bond to date. 
three Jack Ryan films produced and released during the Bond hiatus. So Bond is we're between the Bond movies. Why did we get these things out and why did they produce? Because Jack Ryan was the first spy to load yeah. Bond. Yeah. Why should Bond be raking in all the dough for over three decades? And the other thing about that is he was a very different style. So let's take some of his money, cash in on the absence of Bond from 1989 to 1995. Yeah, Come on. Time. Jack Ryan was just as cool. And there were many other spy movies in the 1990s, like The Russia House in 1990. Yeah, that barely made money, though. That has Sean Connery in it, which is, you know, again, looking back to his Tra- old Bond days. Now he got a competing kind of thing here. Then Ronin. Yeah, now that. In that, 1998. That, yeah, that movie's great because they actually went out and they said, okay, what was, what was Bond doing right? So they went out and they got three of the James Bond villains in there. They brought Sean Bean in from GoldenEye. I love Sean Bean. Jonathan Price from The World Is Not Enough. That's good. And Michael Lonsdale from Moonraker. I mean, they're bringing in these villains from the Bond movies to try to boost it up. And again, they barely made their money back. Yeah. And then there were other spoofs, too, in comedies like Spy Hard in Ah, uh, yes. Agent, Agent WD-40. <laughs> Austin Powers, International Man of Mystery in 1997. But none of these amounted any to any kind of assault on Bond. Although the Austin Power movies actually made four times their money back. They made good money. They made good money. And that was actually better than any of the Brosnan James Bond films, except for Goldeneye. Yeah. And they, they made money, but again, most domestic. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to talk about why that's important. And don't forget, Jason Bourne comes out in this time frame as well. When Mission Impossible 1 came out in 1996, it was a single movie, of course. That was the first one. Yeah, but, so, it, but it was also based on the TV show. So they actually had something they could go with. They had the masks. They have the lit fuse. They have the, um, you know, this table self-destruct. Yeah, that's true. Right? So they had some basis to go off of, but they didn't have storyline to go off of. Right. Yeah. They didn't have what Fleming offered Ian Productions. Like, here, we give you a whole bunch of stories in the beginning. But, yeah, so it, it's, it's there. It's not yet a threat because it was a single movie, but it came out between Goldeneye in 1995, which was a hit, and Tomorrow Never Dies in 1997. So here in 96, you get the first Mission Impossible Assault on Bond, and they're just like, oh, let's, try, let's try this out. So it was pretty good timing to launch the Mission Impossible test balloon. Will it do well? Will people take to it who liked the television show in the 60s? With the two-year stint of the Impossible Mission Force television redo from October of 88 to September of 90, carry over interest in the Mission Impossible movie? Would it do well enough to want to do another one? These are the questions. That it's like, hey, let's put it out there. Producers were finally getting it that there's big money in maybe this. there's money in spy there's, movies there's big money in these spy business you know this is pretty good uh but hey it was a casino play it was a risk but it was a risk take worth taking yeah the dollars are too big not to do it yeah i mean again first they were building on a foundation that was a solid i thought like you said a solid foundation tom in the 60s from the television show audiences love that show so, yeah, so, so did that I. that was good yeah that was a great show i watched it all the time couldn't wait till the next episode so they had a somewhat known commodity but they, like you said they didn't have the storylines really all all ready to go but this was good thinking much like uh albert broccoli and saltzman had a pretty good well-known commodity in in fleming's bond novels 
yet they were books really and not really television or movie productions yet so they had a big leap to get from the pages of the book to the screen although they did they did do that tv show the casino royale tv show what back in what 54 i think it was oh yeah 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 oh the, the yeah that one special casino royale thing with barry nelson yeah yeah that was he would play jimmy bond jimmy you know, bond an american card shark an jimmy american bond. spy jimmy bond yeah that that was something <laughs> that was an interpretation yeah Mission Impossible featured a hot Hollywood actor in Tom Cruise. He was the main character, Ethan Hunt. They were going after Bond, but one step at a time. But let it be known that Mission Impossible 1 began a serious assault on Bond. Why? Because Ethan Hunt and the IMF team loathes Bond. Bond was unchallenged all these decades. Success and success. Billions and billions of dollars. Why was Bond untouched all of these years? Mission Impossible 1 was throwing down the gauntlet and cracking the spy movie success code, and they were pushing Bond around for the first time. That was the plan. But did the assault begin? Well, here, here are some Mission Impossible numbers. Again, we took them from the same source, the dash numbers.com, who does all the movie numbers. And you'll see that this is a little different than, than other assaults on Bond. The first Mission Impossible movie, 1996 grossed $457 million with a production cost of about 80. That's but, a nice start. But the important part is $180 million of the 457 was domestic. That's a good ratio. The second Mission Impossible movie, Mission Impossible 2 in 2000, grossed $549 million worldwide and only 215 of that was domestic. So that's exceptional as well and it goes on from there so you have now an assault on bond where the numbers are pretty damn good and then we'll go into uh, additional numbers for them when mission impossible 3 comes out 397 million okay it went down a little bit but only 133 million of that was domestic ghost protocol 694 million we're getting into bond numbers here with only 209 domestic. Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, 688 million. So that actually is a little bit down from Ghost Protocol. Yeah, not much. 195 million domestic. And then they got Fallout, which came out in 2018. Well, actually, what you just said there was interesting to, to me because the overall gross was down on Rogue Nation over Ghost Protocol. Yeah. But the um, the percentage of what was domestic versus worldwide, worldwide actually did better with it than, yeah. than, than did domestic. And this is important, domestic versus worldwide. So when now Mission Impossible Fallout comes out in 2018, we're, we're, these are real bond numbers, 787 million worldwide, 220 domestic. So like we were talking about in 1996, Mission Impossible 1, launches dramatically with a worldwide gross of over 470 million dollars that's a little more than bond's franchise's gross of their 20th movie so this is the first mission impossible movie doing a little bit better than bond's 20th movie in other words mission impossible was starting off big when that fuse lit the rocket it launched was loud fiery and smooth 
Bond was looking over his shoulder at a contender, and the assault was on. With this great success, the IMF team continued to put the pressure on Bond with their second installment four years later with Mission Impossible 2. With this great success, the IMF team continued to put pressure on Bond with their second installment four years later with Mission Impossible 2, and that grossed over $549 million. And guess what? Mission Impossible had worldwide appeal. With only 39% of its box office receipts coming from the domestic U.S. for the first, and only a little over 37 for MI2, okay, the IMF team is really <laughs> kicking some ass. I mean, in fact, if we look at it in a couple different ways, it wasn't until Casino Royale, the first three um, Mission Impossible movies actually made more money in terms of gross than what happened with Bond. And if we look from 1996 with Mission Impossible, the pressure they're putting on, mm-hmm. They actually have a higher return on their investment since 96 for the six movies than Bond has had for the seven movies over that time period. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a real assault. This is the first serious assault with Bond-like numbers here, too, and sometimes eclipsing the Bond numbers. So between Mission Impossible 2 in 2000 and Mission Impossible 3 in 2006 and waiting for Bond to do something since 2002... Here comes Jason Bourne, too, with the Bourne Identity, launched in 2002. Now, this was another series based on a book. Yes. Right? So this was based on Ludlum's uh, tr- uh, trilogy, you know, really the Bourne trilogy there. That So it was another one of these spy things based off of, uh, with a book's lineage, which actually, actually helped them. Yeah, so if this, this new spy takes off, the assault on Bond could be on multiple fronts and so harder to defend. The Bourne identity is filling in gaps between Bond films and now Mission Impossible films. But the first Bourne, grossing only $214 million worldwide, with over 56% coming from domestic box office sales, was not as challenging. But before another Bond film comes out, or another MI film comes out, the Bourne Supremacy is launched in 2004, grossing a respectable $311 million worldwide, maintaining, though, a high domestic box office of 56%. And they're still getting over a three and a half times return on investment, so it's still very profitable to make these movies. Yeah, they're making money. It's not as much a worldwide appeal so far, with domestic gross lower than either of the first two MI films. But it's still an assault on Bond. And, of course, it's an assault on Mission Impossible as well. So in 2006, Mission Impossible 3 came out, but it grossed only $397 million. I'd like to be able to only. say only $397 million, right? But only 33% of that came from domestic revenue. That's important. And it came out after a six-year gap between MI2 to this film, right? So that's a long time to wait. I mean, those are Bond-like waits. Yeah. Well, they have gaps like Bond did right when they started to get on a roll. And after the wait, it really was the weakest revenue-wise of the new assault on Bond. And still... is nothing, or $397 million is nothing to sneeze at. No. I I think the assault is formidable here. Yeah, I think somebody finally figured it out. Yeah. But now in in 2006, Bond is back and with a vengeance. (laughs) Casino Royale with Daniel Craig as Bond for the first time blows the doors off worldwide box office numbers with $594 million, with only 28% domestic U.S. box office sales. That's important maintaining his dominance as a worldwide spy. 
The Bourne Ultimatum 2007 comes out between Casino Royale and the next Craig Bond film, Quantum of Solace, 2008, and during another five-year wait for the next MI film. Come on, guys. you got to get these yeah. out quick, quicker. Yeah. Even without the other spy franchises breathing down Jason's neck, the film grossing $444 million worldwide with still a large, huge domestic percentage gross of over 51%, is doing okay, but not as much a challenge. But great timing again. Well, and it actually had the best return on investment of all the Bourne films. Yeah, that was a good one. I mean, it was a, it was a great entry and at a perfect time in between all these other films. So the lack of competition here has certainly helped the gross for sure, but still not as big a worldwide appeal, but not bad on this outing. And Bond comes in with the one-two punch with Quantum of Solace in, ni- in 2008, grossing $591 million worldwide. $591 million for one movie. Yeah. Wow. That's nice. And only 28% of that was domestic gross box office receipts. So still dominating the world of spies. After another long wait of five years, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol gets launched in 2011. But it is big in the worldwide box office, grossing over $694 million. Those are bond numbers. With only 30% domestic. Yeah. So its worldwide appeal continues. It's, that's really an important point. To assault Bond, you need to have worldwide appeal. It can't just be domestic. Domestic's not going to cut it. And Mission Impossible's proved four times they have worldwide appeal. But now we have to wait another four years before Mission Impossible Rogue Nation hits the screens, and it's time for Bond to lick his wounds and get stronger. But then, in 2012... Bond explodes onto the screen with Skyfall. 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 That's a great one. Bourne is right behind him with the Bourne legacy, but wait. No more Matt Matt Damon as Jason Bourne. So Craig has two strong performances as Bond. Skyfall launches, and it smokes everything. I mean, mean, this thing was hot. It grosses $1.1 billion. Billion. With only 27% of it. As a gross domestic U.S. dollars. Boom. Bam. I mean, and, and, leg- <laughs> back. and legacy flops. Not only are the dollars down, but they only doubled their money on it. I mean, still, they doubled their money on it, but not close to what they were doing before. Partly because Matt Damon was out of the story, and in part the dominance of Skyfall. It kind of like sucked the air out of everything else. The Born Legacy grosses about $280 million worldwide, and 40% of that was domestic. The Bourne legacy, in, in, in my opinion, in our opinion, is that was their attempt to get out of the Bourne thing. And so they can continue on as a franchise with other stories that didn't have to necessarily involve Bourne running away from the same people who trained him not to get away and get away and boom, boom, boom for you know, all these movies. Well, you, you, and, had, you had the Ludlum trilogy, yeah. which was all about this, this, this agent with amnesia. Right, and they were trying to say, okay, can we keep the franchise going yeah. without the amnesia and that whole circle of what was happening there? Yeah, and the Born Legacy showed that that didn't work. That didn't work so well. So what did they do? They brought they, back Jason Moore from one more later. That anyway, it's not over. The assault on Bond continues as the spies who loathe him continue their advance. While waiting another four years for a Bond film, Spectre, which will be released in 2015, 
Mission Impossible Rogue Nation is in the works, and they're on the same timing schedule for release of Spectre. So there's no resting for Bond during the four-year wait. The IMF team is back and ready to kick ass again. They loathe Bond. So Mission Impossible Rogue Nation in 2015, it grosses the most of any Mission Impossible film to date. $688 million worldwide with only 28% domestic. That's That's a huge worldwide appeal. I mean, that's huge. But Bond, he's got his Kevlar suit on. Spectre grosses over $879 million with less than 23% of that coming domestic. But now Mission Impossible and Bond are close. The closest ever in gross receipts and the closest ever in worldwide versus domestic box office receipts. Now, Now, the cool thing to me is in 2015, those two films grossed over $1.5 billion. Two films. Two films for spy films. That's amazing. That's an amazing number. And both worldwide appeal. So this is cool. But as Spectre wraps up in 2015, and No Time to Die is not scheduled for release until 2020, the next Bond film, there's another five-year wait. So both Mission Impossible and Bourne reload. Jason Bourne hits the screen in 2016 with Matt Damon back and grosses $416 million worldwide, the best since the Bourne Ultimatum in 2007, with a still high 38% domestic gate. And we're back in over around 3.5% or 3.5 times return on investment. Yeah, not bad. But Jason Bourne is filling in the gap again for the Bond fans. And here comes Mission Impossible Fallout in 2018 while we still wait now fallout grosses 787 million dollars and only 28 percent domestic now born i actually think born's done right i don't know how you take that franchise forward they they flopped with the the born legacy and that was their attempt to take it forward i think i I think they're in trouble and matt damon's done a bunch of other spy type movies since and kind of interweaving in here i'm i'm not sure that there's really anywhere to take that thing yeah $787 787 million for Fallout though. Those are those are bond like numbers and those those are the Ian Ian Productions got to be looking at that thinking holy crap. Yeah, there's, there's only two bond films that it, have made more. Is Ethan Hunt the spy who we loathe? <laughs> yeah. What is happening yeah. is, here? Is the loathing is changing? Shift going on. Uh and again, we wait for Bond 2020. In the meantime, Mission Impossible announces Mission Impossible 7 and Mission Impossible 8 will come out in 2021 and 2022, And I I think that's a brilliant strategy for a couple things from a marketing perspective, but it also means they're going to keep crews involved in these as Ethan Hunt for as long as they can. And I'm the same age as Tom Cruise. I'm not in good shape as Tom Cruise, but I'm (laughs) the same age as Tom Cruise. So I can't imagine doing these stunts that he's doing much you know at my age now for him to be able to do this for another two more years but by getting those two movies out in a row they can leverage crews as they do the handoff to whatever's going to be the next imf lead and that'll be their challenge is how they're going to move from crews as ethan hunt to whatever but announcing these now really puts the pressure on the bond folks yeah it's gonna it's and it's gonna it's gonna be interesting thing to me too is are they gonna keep the keep it as this is the new ethan hunt 
where because of the way the IMF was formed right. and the way the television show was, you could put somebody else in there. I'm thinking maybe he becomes, uh, you know, the, the Phelps, director, the or Phelps guy, you yeah. know, like, Hey, he's going to run the whole show and well, let's hope he occasionally doesn't, do some things. Let's hope he doesn't go bad. Yeah. Right. Uh, you can't. Yeah. What's going to happen with bond in no time to die. Is it going to be a major paradigm shift here? Is bond really retired? Does Lashana Lynch really become 007? What will the franchise do? And what will it look like in 2020 plus? All of this, while two more Mission Impossibles will be out, sucking in huge revenues, while Bond and his fans wait. So it's interesting to me that both films are going to have a paradigm shift in the early 2020s. Right, You've got with what's going on with No Time to Die or what's rumored to be going on. It's going to be interesting to listen to this podcast after it's all come out. Yes. Right? But um, with the rumors of what's happening in No Time to Die and then what happens post-Daniel Craig. And yes. then you've got then, there'll be, there'll be some gap there. And then you've got the same thing's going to be happening with Mission Impossible. It's going to be really interesting from the 2020 to 2025 time frame. What happens to both of these franchises? Yeah, but in the meantime, you got Mission Impossible with their seventh and eighth movie maybe taking in a, a billion and a half dollars while we're waiting for Bond to figure out what they're doing next. Yeah, exactly. Which is it's just not so bad for the Mission Impossible folks. So as Ian Production figures out their next Bond strategy, one of the franchises who loathes this spy is challenging the Bond dynasty internationally for a spot at the top. Sometimes loathing just pays off. This has been Dan Silvestri and Tom Pizzato from SpyMovieNavigator.com, the worldwide community of spy movie fans, spy movie podcasts, videos, discussions, and more. If you like our podcast, please give us a five-star rating on iTunes and in Google Play. That helps us a lot. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and on Instagram, too. And when you have feedback, an idea for a podcast, or something else you want to say, a question, whatever, just click on the red button on our website that says, send us a voicemail, or send us a message from our Facebook page. Thanks for tuning in. 